0: Tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil? Overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world? We invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Dr. Coons, as we continue on the American Myth Project here, trying to to put the beast... The Antichrist in its current form, the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, uh, the collapsing civilization in its context for us as Christians. And this week now, second episode, if you missed the first episode, go back and get it. It's going to give you a lot of context for what's going to happen next. But this episode, going, going deep, and and deep in a way that I, I was really surprised by, I really liked how you just threw me these two articles to open up, you know, one for each show and the the eclectic distinction between a political article hit piece against Christians uh, and a, a deep Harvard dive into the religious morality of the mound builders in America. I'm just like, <laughs> how does he find this stuff? Right. Like where what corner of the library? I mean, it's the Internet. I don't even know how Do you got you got moles working for you. It was an amazing article, uh, twofold. First, to see how much we claim to know about these people. I just thought that was like, wow, I I always thought this was like cave painting level stuff. And there's there's a whole code there that's pretty, pretty complete, really. And, you know, the creation myth and whatnot that it has is different. I mean, they make the case, this is like, there's nothing like this in Western civilization. Nothing. This is, you want indigenous America, here you are. Uh, yep. nothing like this. Uh, and then from that, what does it come down to? Oh, well, if I can kill you and take your stuff by, by a trick or by crook, it doesn't matter it is I win. That's, that's their virtue system <laughs> right? right. <laughs> at the end of this thing. And, uh, so we're not only going deep in the sense of back into time, we're going into the abyss of what a truly amoral and destructive barbaric uh, people thought and look like and and how this is where where America begins
1: because and i just i would recommend just like last week and and we'll do this throughout this series cuz we're always going to jump off from from something that you can read for yourself and look into for yourself is to read the linked article which will take you a little bit longer and won't be as intuitive as the political article but yeah i think it will reward you richly and you can find other things from here is that what we're looking at is the reality that was apparent to every European settler who came here, whether you want to start counting from the Spanish reaching the peninsula now known as Florida, or what is certainly more common and and certainly more historically important for what we call America, which is English settlement, and start from there, start start with Jamestown or start with projects before Jamestown is that they recognize that they are sometimes entering what is truly a wilderness. But particularly in the case of the Spanish or even some of the French attempts at settlement in the Southeast, including in Florida in one case, is that not so much that they are always encountering wilderness, but that they are encountering, when they are encountering people, people who are thoroughly pagan. And this was something new for them, that these were not people who had a book and they were people who in many whose myths and in many ways were shaped or or appear i think rather readily as deformations of certain biblical stories then we'll talk about that later but the idea that what is now america is a place that was settled in the name of the christian god over against darkness that was visible and those who were here and there and i want to set up you know what the populations were and and what their density was and stuff like that today but that what they were settling and the people they were encountering were mired in a darkness that was very 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 deep because there was no other light shining and i start there and not with settlement patterns or anything although i want to cover that to show you that what we began with is something that unless we counteract it is what we are heading toward. So what is it like when a nation's foundational myths, in the sense of not necessarily that it's true or false, but that it is a very powerful story, right? The sort of the sense of myth familiar to readers of Lewis or Tolkien. What is it like when a nation's foundational myths have nothing to do with even a remnant or a a shred hanging loosely off the fabric of christendom let alone when they are not christian at all and have nothing to do with bringing the light of christ at all what is that like how do people behave and do we see these things today so i wanted to start there and i want you to read the article now so that as we talk about these things it's that much more apparent to you what what the stakes actually are, because I don't find the past to be uh, distant. (laughs) Now, part of that too is that when I'm thinking about pre-European America, I'm not thinking of a place because I am a young earth creationist. This is not a place that is really honestly all that far away. It's not lost in the mists of time. These people are not radically distant from each other as populations. So there are some things that we can go into that are a little bit speculative about where populations were and how they got here and stuff. But I think it is important to maintain that when we're talking about ancient history, for Christians, ancient is not that old. It's not so old that it becomes unimaginable or utterly alien or practically useless. I think that is part of the the trick of erasure and because of erasure of control that goes on over and over and over again, that if you think of things as far away or distant or irrelevant, then it doesn't it has it has no application to you. So you might even live in the Ohio River Valley or the Mississippi River Valley, and these mounds might be physically accessible to you. It might even be a state park in your state, but its relevance to your life or to your nation's life, is nothing if you think of these things as distant, far off, strange, just you know, just an accident left by history. I think a lot of us are kind of practically Darwinian. That is, we look at a lot of the things right in front of our eyes as accidental, even if we consciously don't affirm what Darwin says.
0: It gets back to what we were talking about uh, about beliefs that are inoperative. Yeah, uh, someone right. said a while back that you know, speaking about the Missouri Synod, I think this is the case for for various Christian traditions. Not all Christians, for sure, uh, that we're we're practically Marcionites. Uh, you know, we we <laughs> we don't really use the Old Testament very much. Um, certainly not the same way that we preach Paul, right? That kind of sure. thing. Sure. Um, sure. So uh, back on the, yeah. the the crazy ancient religion though, right? So like the chief rule right here's your golden rule right what, what's yeah. your golden rule jesus you know do unto others as you would have them do unto you and, and seem to leave things to silver rules better and there's uh, counterparts in other places of western civ including uh, greco-roman you know non-christian influencer maybe they got it from the christians we can debate that young earth creation etc i'm on your side so uh, but here is the here's here's their golden rule right yeah. their golden rule is uh, let thy thoughts and thy purposes be hidden from the world And I can translate that for you, American. It means trust no one. That's what it means. (laughs) Trust no one. (laughs) What kind of darkness Uh, is? It is almost beyond imagination. uh, In one sense, yeah,
1: yeah, because the the two maybe most pertinent parts of what in this this is a document from 1876, and the reason that that matters is because up until roughly the 1890s, you can go online and find these things. They're they're largely Smithsonian publications. This one is not. But you can find inquiry into what we would describe as ancient America or American origins that is pretty open minded about both what is there and, and who we're talking about. So there are a couple of strange facts, probably that fit better as to their uh, highly speculative nature on a word fitly spoken episode. But the strange facts are these, that there are, especially in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys, numerous mounds that are that appear to be burial mounds, somewhat like what are called korgans in Central Asia, which is where you're sort of identified genetically as European, sometimes even having red hair, even though buried in a desert in China populations are so the the burial practice is is odd for the americas and it made many people speculate especially in the 19th century that these are a a pre what we think of as american indian population okay i'm not decided on that and i don't have any obviously they didn't have
0: why are you not ready to make a dogmatic statement about this dr coons (laughs) are you still Um, preaching false doctrine uh,
1: yeah, right, maybe. Um, uh, part, partly because of something that we have noted that we actually do know from modern genetic research, which is that there is inside what get called American Indian populations, there is enormous genetic diversity. And there are various accounts, uh, written accounts of various European settler populations, both on the East Coast, but also into like North Dakota with the Mandans, of encountering people who don't. who look like me and I'm not eligible for reimbursement by any tribe in the United States of America. So there are all kinds of mysteries about early America and, and we might even say prehistoric America that I don't want to come down hard and fast on. But what is different about the 19th century from the 20th and the 21st is that in the 19th, you're still allowed to ask, are these are these Europeans or 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 who are these people? The other weird fact about them, and th- this is where it gets more into um, you know, Pastor Grills and me just kind of talking, speculating in a in a fun way, is that everyone from Thomas Jefferson to some of these Smithsonian reports will talk about the enormous size of the skeletons inside these mounds when they do discover human remains in them. That you're talking about people that are from the length of their femurs, would seem to be seven or eight feet tall. Just enormous. Just strange, right? What you're getting in this Harvard Crimson article that we have linked is an exploration from that time of the mythology surrounding those things. So what's important here, and you can find this in a source I kind of love, is a a travel diary by a Moravian missionary in. Pennsylvania and Ohio and and what and West Virginia and Indiana before three of those places are even states named John Heckewelder and he'll just tell you because Moravians devoted a lot of time to what we would call anthropology or ethnography he'll just tell you what the you know what the Muncie Indians said happened or or where they said they came from. And what you have in this linked article is something a lot like that, although it's it's about 75 years after Heckewelder was writing. And what you get in these is a, there are kind of two common patterns. And I picked this article because it's it's a less common pattern because it accounts for other people. Most of these creation accounts, so you can go look at one that I taught many times at Temple in a course on religion in Philadelphia. I always started with Indians and I would say... The Delaware Indians, also called the Lenni-Lenape, would explain where they came from. So this is a common thing that you'll find in pagan mythology is that it will explain where its own nation came from. Here are where the gods of the Greeks came from. But that Greek mythology does actually account for other humans besides Greeks. Japanese mythology will account for where the Yamato people came from. It doesn't necessarily account for where what are called the Ainu came from. And those are just on the Japanese islands. So a lot of pagan mythologies, including a lot of American Indian mythologies, will just account for where those people came from. And their name for themselves will be like people. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it would be like everyone who's not from Appalachia is not people if I were to say the same thing, if I invented a mythology and did it the same way, it would be like, Pastor Fisk is not people.
0: Yeah, it's like having the but, last name family, right? Like, we're, I'm Mr. Family, <laughs> right.
1: right? Yeah, right, this is Dave family, and then that is like, Bob not family, is right? Is
0: anyone not in your family? Yeah, lots of people, there's only my family, <laughs> right. right? And You don't have but, family, only we got right, family. Right,
1: but that's kind of irrelevant because the cosmos revolves around our people. Yeah. Right, and this is this is what, you know, famous, twitter user second city bureaucrat calls ethno narcissism that you're you're kind of just interested in your own group whatever that group is whether it's turtle clan of the lenny lenape or or for the purposes of legal recognition by the commonwealth of pennsylvania for tax purposes and business purposes it's all lenny lenape or or whatever it is that you're looking for that only your group matters and there is something that, the reason that's basically pagan is because it leaves you completely incurious about where the whole world yeah, came no, from. There's
0: no creation, right? There's, there's no, no creation, creation. itself. Ultimately. I mean, the,
1: there is even a creation myth, but it's not about the creation. No. It's just about your creation. It's about
0: you. It's about you. Correct. Did you say Turtle Clan just offhandedly? I gotta ask.
1: Uh, no. Uh, I no because. Is, is this like a pop culture reference that I'm just completely, I'm, I'm such an idiot. So (laughs) no, the no, it's an actual, you know, how like, um, things with this is especially true more in the West than in the East. (laughs) Things with Indians will involve the four, the four different colors, black, white, yellow, and red. And those stand for four directions and then things get associated with those colors and those directions for the Delaware Indians. Not the state, but like that's the tribe name. and Lenape is their own name. Is uh, turtle is one of the. It's like a totem.
0: Sure. Yeah. No, it makes a ton of sense. It's just also going to get people thinking about you know Shredder and Bebop, and it's uh,
1: well, uh, I actually (laughs) did. Okay, now I know what you're talking about. I actually did watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but I I don't have total recall on you know TV. TV turtle clan.
0: So anyway, yeah. Not accounting for others in your worldview.
1: Right. It's right. a pretty it's,
0: glaring error, right? There's a there's a missing spot. Hello? I
1: I think I think as long as you are incurious about other human beings, which if you're a Christian, you really can't afford to be because you have a worldwide mandate. So that's going to apply. If you're Slovak, that's going to apply to the Czechs and the Poles as well as to you. If you're black, that applies to white people and Asian people too, Right. But if you're a pagan, it doesn't necessarily apply. And if you don't go much of anywhere, or you, or all you need to remember is that you used to be from somewhere else, and now you're here, and so you're living in some kind of eternal present. You have no history because you have no particular. There's no creation. There's no bigger story
0: than like you can get away with. Mexico, it. man.
1: Right. Exactly. It and kinda... so you. Right. It's it it it's a kind of a self erasure. So we talked about erasure, but there are forms of erasure that are self-produced, right? It's not that someone else is erasing history for you or erasing the existence of another people group or a different land or different ways of eating dinner or something that curiosity would actually cause you to want to know about. It's that you just don't care and you're not going anywhere. So it doesn't matter. Now, what happens with self-erasure or... Or if you want to talk about as a larger thing, ethno-narcissism, is that it also prevents you from remembering that you were from somewhere else. So in the, in the case of many American Indian groups, and this doesn't have to do with their mythology necessarily, but you can just tell from their language that they're from somewhere else. So the Cheyenne, right? So you got Cheyenne, Wyoming. The Cheyenne are... Very obviously, based on their language, from points much farther east. It's going to be the same thing with the Lakota or what are more broadly called the Sioux. They move west. The Shawnee, kind of in Ohio, West Virginia, kind of Ohio Valley area. What's notable about a lot of groups like the Shawnee or any of the River Valley, maybe centric, you might want to say tribes, is that they knew they knew, they were at least honest, they knew that they didn't build the mounds. So what is interesting is that if erasure exists in one group and, and they don't remember that they came from anywhere else, there might be another group who, and th- and this does have to do with their mythology, remembers that other things were made besides themselves. Because if you can remember that, then you have a much better shot at being curious about the past and therefore recovering or recalling things that were otherwise forgotten i, I started with the delaware indians specifically because their mythology is entirely about themselves <laughs> and so in in that case when they were encountered by by missionaries and the delaware were pretty extensively evangelized by by moravians in early america when they're encountered by missionaries The missionaries have to work really, honestly, a lot harder to explain why they're supposed to care about things that happened in a place they've never been to, which would be like the death and resurrection of Christ, right? In a people group that is not their people group. Ethno-narcissism is, in that way, a lot harder to kind of break through with Christianity because there's a basic lack of curiosity about other human beings baked into really just being obsessed with your own group, <laughs> right? And so that's that—that's one variant of mythology. Maybe let's talk about the other one before we talk about settlement patterns, but the settlement patterns thing is gonna matter, is that what you get preserved in the article that's linked is a different kind of a memory taken from Indians of the Mississippi River Valley, not the Ohio River Valley, but they both have large mounds, the Mississippi River Valley had much larger mounds generally than Ohio, Yeah, the Ohio Valley, not just this, what's now the state. But those larger mounds, and you can visit them really easily kind of in the St. Louis area on the Illinois side at Cahokia, is what you're getting there is a remnant of something that both in this article and in other things you can find, no one is able to actually claim credit for. So the people that do have some account for what these things were, what they're for, or how they are, are people who are – it would be sort of like an American who's never been to Europe trying to talk about cathedrals or maybe using St. Patrick's in New York as some kind of analogy of a European cathedral, but it didn't take us that long to build it. And, you know, I mean, the circumstances were just different they know when they're when they're moving around the mississippi river valley that they that they didn't put those things here now why does that why does that matter because what you can see in the linked article is that when there are things that you're curious about for which you have no explanation you're going to seek some kind of explanation and they seek it in an idea that although they were put here by some sort of divine intervention so the idea of what's in the 1840s going to be called Manifest Destiny by John O'Sullivan is not even unique to white Americans. Manifest Destiny is what almost everyone tells himself when he's doing well. <laughs> so when you know the Shawnee basically make what's now West Virginia just their hunting grounds, or when the Lakota are very successful in the Northern Plains, or the Comanche are very successful once they obtain horses in the Southern Plains, is that they will begin to tell themselves that they are supposed to be here and that they're here by some sort of divine intervention. What's really interesting about this article is that it leaves the possibility of further divine intervention, especially from over the sea, open. That's what's interesting to me, is that the divine founders of what were apparently the mound builders are somehow gone and need to come back and that they're coming back. And probably the listeners are most familiar with this sort of idea, this, this idea of a prophecy of men on boats. They're probably most familiar with this from the context of Mexico, not America, of Mexico, where a, a white God will come on a canoe and this has a deep religious impact on the Aztecs when Cortez does in fact show up. That gets me into the settlement pattern thing, which I want to talk about and just kind of open, but not necessarily go on for 20 minutes without interruption. But the, sett- the settlement pattern thing is this, that it's important to remember that American Indians also exist historically. So if they are thoroughly paganized, sorry, Book of Mormon, if they're thoroughly paganized, then they're not thoroughly ahistorical. They weren't just like sitting there magically right where they were found by whatever missionary or soldier reached them first from some European country. They have their own history. They moved around. They were confused with other people. They confused themselves with other people. The people we call the Aztecs themselves state that they came from the north. There's some thought that the particularly fearsome cliff dwellers, the Anasazi, who were the enemies of what are now the Navajo and the Apaches, that the Anasazi may have been the Aztecs before they went south. But the Aztecs themselves say we, we came into the Valley of Mexico, that they conquered, they were conquered, they were brutal, they were brutalized all of that i think is very important to remember because i think that one of the controls over the past that is exercised is a sort of very extensive version of the noble savage myth yeah, yeah. that if people are are not are not white christians they are not only relatively sinless but they also don't really have a history that they never did anything and nothing ever happened <laughs> and therefore they're not really morally culpable right? That's the savage part of noble savage. The nobility is that they're so much better than the civilized people. But the savage part is that they're almost like children. They're not morally culpable for anything, meaning they have no history. Nothing ever happened. And it's just not true. There are instances where at the time of, for instance, white settlement of what's now Pennsylvania, a lot of it has been cleared out by the confederation we call the Iroquois, which is really several different tribes over time. And the very small populations that are present in most of what becomes Pennsylvania are there at the sufferance of the Iroquois who are in what we would now call upstate New York. It Most of it is kept as hunting grounds. I mean, purposely. There was other settlement. There are even almost like cave paintings in southwestern Pennsylvania but who put them there and and exactly when and how is kind of unclear because the populations that were there at the time of european settlement and this is the late 17th century were relative to the land and its fertility extremely small and the iroquois exercised control over them by and large so it's it's important not to let the historical nature of every people group's existence be erased by the idea that some of them are just beyond culpability or they just sort of came up out of the ground. That's the that's the power of claiming to be indigenous. So those things are all, I think, important to note, but you want to talk about mythology a little bit more before we say anything yeah, else? Yeah, maybe,
0: I, I don't know, there's a lot there. The yeah. the, um, the purity factor of the indigenous Ideal that yeah. is just automatically granted is is really kind of stunning in a society that is uh, you know fame or um, uh, personality driven you know it, it is uh, people look to you for what you're able to to promote right and and how much you can posture and stand that's how a lot of people will trade with each other um, and. Uh, seeing that you know almost then again getting get into the mythology side of it the hard line in which trying to promote self trying to fight against world and there is nothing but gain for self that's what i saw in the actual myth right and the, the tale yeah, of the two right. brothers um and uh I mean, if I had to come up with, like, the most antithetical Christian morality story I, I could think of, I mean, this is it. Uh, it it's like we have, and another way to, to kind of, uh, I don't know, tell me if this is a fair comparison, it, it's like everything about the Scythian, steppe, barbaric, awful, called Ruggle Game of Thrones, wicked tribal horse lord steppe peoples it just kind of had the inverse version plopped out over here with a religious discourse, and they told you, you know, h- how to kill or cheat uh, in order to win, and that really what matters as long as you got a nice cloak, you know, um, and and that this is like institutionalized for them effectively, right? Right. That this is meta narrative yeah. for them. That is that is a profound profound thing. Not only to say like, look what arises without Christianity. Like, just look look what happens. Look what we come up with. <laughs> Dear heavens. Right. Um, But but then also, uh, if we are if we are headed back into such times uh, where people are unable to reason um, and and are easily uh, swayed or even uh, uh, what? um, sold uh, the the pursuit of such uh, Narcissistic uh, Hatred of other groups, right? Right uh, so <laughs> and you, maybe you see where I'm going here and you start waving certain color flags and and things as well So w- at what point does the actual religion come back that that's my real like deep? Uh, Cthulhu okay. yeah. h- hiccup on this is like oh wait, I wrote their names down do I still have them here? You know our Mune and Bush are actually at work here in America behind everything is one New York one LA but that's like the crazy talk coming out, right? Um, just the the amorality of their morality itself right. is just a stunning, stunning thing.
1: Yeah, I, I think they do come back because I don't think that demons are particularly creative creatures. So if they're going to have a highly urbanized society that is also entirely non and or anti-Christian, and if it's non, it's necessarily going to be anti then it's going to express itself in in replicable ways it's going to happen this way right it's going to work this way and not in another way so the morality identified is applicable not so much to a relatively flat relatively small groupings of even a plains tribe that has you know banded together enough to have horses and conduct large scale essentially cavalry raids but you're you're talking in the case of the mound builders whoever they were or of the aztecs or of the mayans of pretty urbanized pretty socially and politically complex societies and when that happens Without Christianity, there is a, an enormous amount of, and this is what the Crimson article says is so alien to European civilization, because European civilization is within historical memory, necessarily Christian. I, I don't think it's actually civilized without Christianity. Then what is so foreign to it is this simply the normalcy of deception. The yeah. deception is constitutive of normal life. That's that's the way it works. And you're going to lie, and you're going to deceive, and you're going to cheat. And no one is saying that this is somehow absent from Christians or from societies that are predominantly or officially or legally Christian. What the author, whoever it was, it's, it's an unsigned article. What the author is maintaining is that this is not socially accepted like we all know we're doing it and we keep doing it. I think it's different now in 2023 than it was in 1876 when he wrote this. That the idea that you would go to work or you would go to school or you would go to wherever and you would just kind of all lie to each other about what you really cared about or what you were really doing or what you really thought is accepted. Hmm. And that dishonesty is the thing that is downstream of certain kinds of creation myths of certain kinds of origin stories and if the origin story is that the attainment of naked power is absolutely the only thing really worth getting and they have a sort of in addition addition to the creation story and this is where they put the men and this is where they put the women and they came on these canoes in addition to the creation story here you also have sort of a a shadow of Cain and Abel mm-hmm. in the same way that the story of Romulus and Remus is a shadow or a deformation or a, a transformation of the story of Cain and Abel is that after there's some kind of catastrophe and or creation or recreation, you then get brothers who are rivals. But the, the take home from this particular brothers who are rivals story, and you get flood stories everywhere and you get rival brother stories and you get you know, all these things kind of look the same. This particular Brothers Who Are Rivals story is really about how lying is and, dis- and deception are what are going to get you where you need to be. So their practice is not so much a matter of, you know, right or wrong. It's a, It's a question of balance. And it's not just that the human flesh tells you that, it's that, the difference now in a in a de-Christianized America is that you can say that out loud. You know, this is not about right or wrong. This is about what I needed to do at that point in my life. This is not about whether this was right or wrong. This is about what what felt right at the time or what seemed right at the time or what would keep my life in balance or what I needed to do for my self-care. So when you're dealing with a non-Christian society, whether now or all the way back then, You're dealing with a constant, constant choosing of feeling over principle
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: every time. Principles cannot guide your actions in such a society because there really are no principles except this person could hurt you, (laughs) so don't upset him. This person could bereave you of everything you own, so don't make him angry. This person could kill you, so don't tell him that he has no clothes, right? That's the only principle. You don't get to have your own principles. You don't get to exercise them. You don't get to increase in the wisdom necessary to carry them out. You don't have principles. You just have hierarchical relationships that you have to figure out.
0: Uh, You you have stumped me again, Dr. Koontz, in that there's too much. It's too deep and it's too bothersome. You know, do do we talk about uh, manifest destiny? and how it continues to be something that the Christian localist needs to contend with and and maybe even consider pray toward do, do we talk about the the woke religious machines savage purity rules by which they're gradually creating heretics out of whole groups of people who uh, really you, know, you like to make the argument that they you know they they're the majority of us that are here but like just people haven't done anything they haven't really done anything wrong I mean, he's kind of living their lives um, or, or just uh, the demonic edge of this that they're they're not creative that they they can only rebuild Philistia tire inside on again like that's all they can do right yeah. can only arise again so there's so many spaces in which this conversation is valuable and yet part of me just wants to ask you about the mythology of the actual I should say the anthropology of the actual giants <laughs> you know and, and let's like rehash that conversation because uh, that, that's a fun one too and Bigfoot's always exciting to people. So, um, yeah, I don't know which of those yeah. threads do you want to keep pulling on.
1: Yeah. I can say, I can say a little bit about the giants because I, I think something you need to notice is that when you get, when you get physical freakishness in the Bible, it's, it's among, in the specific case of the old Testament, it's, it's always among pagan peoples and the, the freakishness is indicative of some sort of trifling with what is forbidden, what is wicked, what is off-limits by divine statute. But because those those limits for human life are not heeded by pagans, they get both physical and also moral freakishness. So the same people who produce giants and prodigies, you know, the king with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. In addition to more famous people like like Goliath, these are all, these are all people who are under divine judgment and the Israelites are going to be the tool of that judgment in the old Testament, but they're not, they're not condemned for no reason or as a, or as an act of sheer arbitrary genocide, they are destroyed because of their rebellion against God. So if you have giants buried in these mounds and, Thomas Jefferson and notes on the state of Virginia was not just completely making things up out of whole cloth. And whatever else you want to say about Thomas Jefferson, wild intellectual dishonesty to his own principles is, is not one of his flaws. <laughs> the Jefferson Bible was created out of a very intense honesty to his own principles. It, it, however, terribly, wrong, sincerely
0: right? mistaken man.
1: Yes, right. Yeah. But not, <laughs> he's not just like, oh, I don't know. This sounds funny. LOL. You know, if if those things were found, right? And you can the the thing to look for in the case of the Smithsonian is what was called the Bureau of Ethnology. And that was that was really specifically applied to American prehistory.
0: Sounds like X Files.
1: Is is that what whatever it was, it was going to be evidence of a past that was not sanctified, that was not holy, that was dark. That might have been splendid, or interesting, or amazing, at one point. And conventional history is going to place the mound builders somewhere around sort of Europe's High Middle Ages, generally speaking. So you're you're looking at the 1300s, the 1400s. That if those things were there, and whoever put them there, and and then went away, generally in pretty much every everyone's mythology, they they are gone they were replaced by others others came into their lands from other places then what you're dealing with is a a time and a place that was splendid but evil hmm. and th- this is something to to think about with the concept of manifest destiny is that somewhat like christian nationalism i think there's a certain accuracy if you want to explain it in a certain way and i if people want to crucify me for the way that i explained it last week as historically accurate they can do that it doesn't matter but that there's all that i think the term in its common sense manifest destiny is it's misunderstood just just because it was sort of obvious okay so the sense in which it's accurate is that historically in the young united states of america you have a people group of incredible energy and drive who have a vast military advantage over almost all their potential opponents. So the idea that somehow, you know, they're not going to end up conquering this continent that they are able to move across. You, you, you don't have to claim prophetic capacities in order to see that that's going to happen.
0: Yeah. yeah no, nor, nor to see that, that the, The one who rules this continent will then have a very uh, uneven playing piece in the world game. Uh, yeah, that, right. That right. the, the smaller yeah. of the two world, world continents uh, is the one you want to take and risk first, right? Like you, <laughs> uh, right. you, you build yeah. from a base. And this right. base that this very, you, you call them, you know, focus-driven people have is also just wide open and filled with resources that much of the rest of the world could only dream Correct. of having, right? right? Exactly. So how could you not think, this is going to change the future and the whole future is going to revolve around this place somehow, some way, and so Let's let's go, right? right. Yeah. yeah,
1: and that that's that's the meaning of the adjective manifest and the term manifest destiny, <laughs> is that is that if if our if our military competitors in this move west are going to be essentially the Comanches and maybe sometimes the Mexicans, I can see how it's going to turn out.
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> and and that, I mean that was the complaint about the Mexican War, even the religious complaint, especially by. What were then called Whigs was this basically is not fair. Okay. Not even on their own territory. Is this a fair fight? Right. That was, that was part of the big argument that was made against intervention in Mexico. So that's, that's the sense in which the term is accurate. The term destiny is obviously more weighted theologically, but the manifest part I don't really think is historically debatable. The sense in which it's generally misunderstood is that this is some sort of, Strong claim to something that is historically unique, and this is not true. Like I said earlier, everyone who is generally doing well socially, politically, and particularly militarily is going to claim at one point or another that it's his destiny to, for the Germans to take over Eastern Europe. For the Slavs to retake Eastern Europe from the Germans uh, as World War II rolls up in I the
0: think east, Napoleon comes to mind. Genghis Khan kind of yeah. had a thing about everybody being from God, yeah. <laughs> everybody
1: and and the what would become the Americans were no different than any Indian tribe that was successful at the time. It's just that they both technologically and also as a as a group, you could say civilizationally, had advantages and capacities that no Indian tribe before them had had. But the Iroquois Confederation was within its own sphere, as were the Lakota or the Comanches. And you can get a whole revisionist, sort of a academically acceptable revisionist strain of these things in the work of Pekka Hemalinen, who is, as he sounds to be, a, a Finnish academic, but he works in America and he works on American Indian history. And he's got their revisionist comanche empire lakota america they're revisionist in the sense that i i think they kind of make it seem like (laughs) i don't know i mean to me they 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 read almost like if you get a really fervently pro-southern account of the american civil war and it's like i know why you're cheering for these people and what your ideological commitments are but you know the South didn't really have significant reserves of anthracite coal or large railroad networks, so I'm sorry, this just is not going to end well for you. You know what I mean? Like it's like it, it's kind of romantic, but it's romantic in the name of something that he's claiming gave serious resistance to white settlement in the Southwest, in the case of the Comanches, for whatever 150 200 years. That's you know that's fine. I I like revisionism. I like considering new things, new facts. The issue, though, is that it it makes it seem as if the extension of particularly Anglo-American civilization across the continent was completely new in the world. And it wasn't. It's just that they succeeded at something that everyone else tries to when they can.
0: Right. So someone's always trying to get elected right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, right. To yeah. become the elect, right? Yeah. Something yeah. like that, right? right. Yeah. Well,
0: they're, they're trying to mm-hmm. put themselves in the driver's seat. They're trying to uh, actually fulfill the religion of man's carnal flesh, which is is gain the power. And we watch this rise and fall of nations uh, across history and shouldn't be surprised then when a right. study of history shows us that uh, the possibilities which were before are not unlike the possibilities that are, are before us right now. And so... Again, to, to to think of where the spirituality of the United States of America is going right now, and and to see the um, the codes of the mound builders as a pretty fair, not prophecy, but just description, in fact, of probably right. how most of your neighbors, if they don't go to any church, uh, don't ever read the Bible. Um, how they think and maybe even then right maybe even then especially if their church happens to you know fly fly flags uh not because of god's sign for the flood but for for other reasons right they um, may be on the other side so to to see this again as you know a gut check as to what life can be like is like if we're honest with ourselves about our theology of sin which at least in my experience uh, you know we are we will we will go to the mat to explain reprobation and depravity as a thing that you know yeah. we can talk about with with you know jargon Right, but in terms of like what man really does, uh, you know, can we trust these outsiders who have nothing in common with us? Uh, do not believe in our God, uh, and in fact, perhaps are pedophili- pedophiliacs. Uh, you know, can we trust them? Um, and we're we're willing to like kind of you know play nice. And it's weird again uh, the the lack of um, discernment there uh, in, in the midst of a world which the rest of the world just sees. You know, you grab the power, you grab the power, you grab the power. Right. I'm not saying we should grab the power. I think we should not be ignorant of the fact that that's what everyone's doing. And that's your point, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and and this too, that a lot of the things that we're going to track. So next week, we'll be talking about some of the just sheer religious, just sheerly religious variety of early America is that a lot of things about our society are built to cope with historical situations that, while they still exist, are no longer common. So religious liberty is built to answer certain questions about how various Christian groups can exist in the same political space. freedom of speech has a certain historical context and and theological warrant that no one else senses These things are both worth preserving for their own sake, where and when they are true, but they're also, we have to recognize, not built to handle what is effectively in the modern day religious clashes. So we're not facing, either in the Mississippi River Valley or anywhere else in modern America, primarily a clash that is what we would call theological, that is within the bounds of Christian theology. We could call it theological, but maybe spiritual is a better word or religious because we're dealing with opposition from other religions, not even necessarily, you know, paging, you know, paging the Republican Party before about 2012, not even necessarily Islam, but something else that we struggled to find a word for last week. I don't know, communism, antichrist, but it's kind of helpful to have labels for things that it so obviously functions as a non-Christian religion with requisite affirmations that because these things are delivered in like your HR training, don't appear to be religious because these things are delivered in your sociology class that you have to take for gen ed requirements do not appear to be religious because these things are you know delivered by your your daughter when she comes home from college at the dinner table and not from a pulpit somewhere do not appear to be religious but they nonetheless are they're serious they affect you they usually have to do with origins so the noble savage myth that we mentioned earlier is one of the yeah. it's one of the pillars of this because it then represents all European settlement as as fundamentally evil. So you're, you know, their version of Genesis three is a white person, I don't know, occupying space in the world <laughs> somewhere. You know, that's the fall into sin. I don't know. But if you don't understand that the opposition to you is religious in nature and maybe more thoroughly or clearly or operatively religious, then you don't really know what you're up against. You think that this is some sort of reasonable matter of like, you and a Baptist disagree, but you can both agree that you're not going to like, you know, wreck, like drive your car into the other guy's house in retaliation for his understanding of pedo baptism.
0: I know we've talked about this before, um, but if I can, uh, try, if I don't lose it in the thought, try to reiterate here. Um, nope, I lost it. There it went. It'll come back. We got about nine minutes here. Mm-hmm. Uh, where else you want to go?
1: Let's talk just a little bit more about settlement patterns because this is going to be important for who is encountered by whom, as we start talking about European settlement proper next week, is that, as I noted a little bit earlier, Indian populations are going to be a lot denser towards the south, but especially towards the east, such that what is now the American southeast. So, you know, kind of uh, if, if your state school could be in the SEC, you know, we're looking at you that those places are gonna be more highly populated. That is why some of the searches that particularly Spaniards are going to engage in for gold, including De Soto's journey, Coronado's journey, and others like it before and after it, even beginning from very early days in the 16th century coming into Florida, the reason that those, those stories are what they are is because you're originally looking for gold, not so much in what is now the American Southwest, as in what is the American Southeast, particularly the, the Appalachian Piedmont in the Southeast. So you're talking like sort of like Atlanta area, the you know research triangle of North Carolina, these kinds of places, because you have high degrees of settlement. So – Precious metals are being found and used by somebody, the Spaniards are deluded as to what exactly they're encountering. And that that is partly because America feels unprecedented.
0: It Not is. utterly
1: unfamiliar, but yeah, but unprecedented to the people coming to settle various parts of it. So it's it's helpful to remember, and a lot of Americans don't think this way but if you've ever been to St Augustine Florida maybe you have is that the you know not only is the oldest city in the continent you know in the United States the oldest city is in Florida but also that you need to kind of think of american history as as moving not sort of from the northeast outwards as hesitantly moving from the southeast northwards and then from the northeast outwards and that is partly because of the possibilities of contact with human beings that they're not encountering a completely unsettled land but a land that is especially fairly well populated i mean not compared to today but for you know the early modern world pretty well populated in the southeast and in other places you're you're beginning to already you already have the ravages of particularly disease contact with the old world but also warfare that is going to leave, as I noted, Pennsylvania, but also what's now West Virginia, also a lot of the interior of what's now New England, relatively depopulated, maybe even compared to 200, 300 years earlier than that, depending on whom you believe. So when you're looking at it, you kind of have to rearrange your mind and start with the idea that you're dealing with pagan societies that by their own account are not the first ones there, but also are not really where European settlement is by and large going to take place. So if if Florida, which is some parts of which are actually tropical and therefore relatively easy for human beings to just live in, if Florida is relatively densely populated, European settlement is going to make it the least populous state of the confederacy at the beginning of our civil war so i started where i started partly to understand where the settlers started right they're coming into a land that is both strange fascinating and obviously pagan but also to just sort of rearrange one's own thinking because there's a degree of i think presumed but not real overfamiliarity with early america that people have and it creates, you know, it's sort of like, if I start cutting in the wrong direction at the beginning of the cut, I'm probably not going to end up with a straight line either. So if I start in the wrong place, like I think America started in 1776, or with the Constitution, or that everybody was like a Puritan no, or something. Was,
0: yeah, I you know what happened was yeah. the, the Puritans got off the boat, and it was winter. And then the, the Indians had Turkey and they right. brought the turkey to the the white people and the white people ate the turkey and then they killed the indians in their sleep and took all their shells and that that oh, that's is really cool the settlement picture but there's something to this though okay now as i say that like we, we got that picture in, in uh grade school of the um you know the happy thanksgiving everyone's working about, yeah. and yet somehow yeah. what that turns into is that's exactly what those white people were there to take all their stuff And now that's where we are. And we've got to have reparations. We've got to, you know, we've got to come to terms with white guilt. We have on and on and on uh, all the labels that are going to heft on to half of the population base of of this country, um, ethnic heretical crimes that neither they nor their fathers actually committed. (laughs) Right. Right. And and then that's actually a religious motive right now out there right like like wake up people uh you can't do the right thing enough for that not to come after you uh, when you're in his crosshairs and this is uh the present darkness and this is the zeitgeist right it it is it is a religious evil of uh, as you point out like you know historically unprecedented for western you know civilization post britannia christendom i don't know and sidon were probably pretty dark places though you know Uh, uh what was nineveh before it was right. destroyed, right?
1: Yeah, right, yeah. So this this idea of erasure, if, if they erase the historical existence of Indians, you don't know anything about it, and you look at them sort of implicitly, but not for any particularly substantive reason, as like beautiful and amazing, and, and basically like Avatar, right? Avatar is most people's version of what happened before the Puritans. Yep, that's about right. Then what comes after that You know, which which eerily down to the level of costuming, apparent, also lines up with and determines people's understanding of the Puritans is basically *The Handmaid's Tale*. So it's like *Avatar* followed by *Handmaid's Tale*. Obviously, we know who the bad guys are, and that idea, especially if you are a Christian, is particularly reprehensible. Not only for its falsehood, but also because it's like (laughs) no one at the time thought that nobody. Okay. Some Indians had no particular reason to think that other people existed or that it mattered. I mean, even other Indians. And the Indians that did have a mythology accounting for maybe somebody's going to come on a boat or something. They had a more profound grasp of what was perhaps happening with the coming of Moravian missionaries to them or John Elliott printing the first Bible printed in America in an Algonquin language, not in English. Uh, we weren't allowed to print our own Bibles. We'll talk about that.
0: Yeah.
1: They had a more profound grasp of what was occurring than modern Americans who basically think it's like Avatar, then Handmaid's Tale, then an MLK documentary. And here we are in 2023.
0: Yeah. Well, when you think in movie, you, by definition, can't, can't put many thoughts together in right. a row. You're, you're dealing with, <laughs> with cartoons um, in your head, and you're dealing with a very imprecise view of, of reality. Um, kind of, uh, well, you've accused me of it before, but I think it's right. You know, overly metaphorically thinking, uh, believing that your ideas will have more power than the world around you, and, uh, well, everyone listens to the show because we all kind of agree, yeah, yeah, those, those ideas aren't going to work, they're going to fall apart. Let's uh, Let's be ready for that. And maybe by founding our ideas on words that will will never perish, will never vanish. Uh, where are we going next?
1: We're going to talk about the beginnings of settlement and some of the early Catholic history, particularly in the southeast. Before picking up with Jamestown, maybe at the end of next week, but maybe a couple of weeks from now, in order to talk about begin to talk about some of the variety present, because I think that is one of the hardest things both for Lutherans and for Catholics, to understand about just sort of the base layer of American Christianity in the same way that our towns look the way they do, depending on if they were started by New England Yankees, even if those guys are no longer here. The base layer of American Christianity is a variety of English-speaking Protestantisms. And the sooner that you understand both that that is and then also what it is, which is what we hope to do, the better off you are. So we're going to start introducing that
0: variety. That's right. That's right. If you're going to lead the protest, you got to know what all the shouting's about. You listen to A Brief History of Power, you know where to find it, or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. Hebroncollegium.com.
1: What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, LutherClassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, You can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the Saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessed sacrament lutheran blessed sacrament lutheran church historic christian orthodoxy the evangelical lutheran faith in the beautiful inland northwest